0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Secularism. This is your hostess, Annie Sapukaya. Today we are interviewing Dr. Sakibu Hutchinson on her new book, Godless Americana, Race and Religious Rebels, published by Infidel Books. Sikifu Hutchinson is a writer, social justice activist, and founder of the Women's Leadership Project, a mentoring program designed to educate and empower women in the South Los Angeles community. Dr. Hutchinson received a PhD in performance studies from New York University and has taught women's studies, cultural studies, urban studies, and education at UCLA, the California Institute of the Arts, and Western Washington University. Most of her work focuses on the history of African-American secular humanism and its role in black liberation struggle. She is the author of several books, including Imagining Transit, Race, Gender, and Transportation Politics in Los Angeles, published in 2003,
1: Moral Combat,
0: Black Atheists, Gender Politics, and the Value Wars, 2011, and of course the book we are discussing with her today, Godless Americana, Race and Religious Rebels. Dr. Hutchison is also the editor of the blog blackfemlens.org. Welcome to New Books on Secularism, and today we are talking to Sikibu Hutchinson, author of Godless Americana, Race and Religious Rebels. Um, good afternoon, Sakeel. Hi, how are you? Hi, good. Uh, so to start off, could you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book?
1: Well, I'm based in Los Angeles and I'm an educator and I work with the L.A. County Human Relations Commission. I do youth leadership development and professional development for South Los Angeles schools. I'm also a writer and contributor to a number of different publications, primarily on feminism, cultural studies, American studies, and African American studies, social justice, and gender justice issues. So I've been an out-identified atheist for, I'd say, about 15 to 20 years. I grew up in a secular household that would probably be described as humanist in today's parlance, but definitely we had not characterized ourselves that way when I was coming up. You know, that was not something that was within mainstream discourse and particularly not within mainstream discourse or parlance in African American communities of color. So I was compelled to write my first book, Moral Combat, Black Atheist, Gender Politics and the Values Wars, because there was such a vacuum in meaningful politicized representation of the life experiences, the cultural context, the social capital, and the historical trajectories of non-believers of color there is a big absence in visibility on social gender justice and community-based organizing issues when it comes to humanism atheism and free thought there's been a long robust history of african-american secular humanism but not a lot of interface with the way in which humanism impacts upon organizing, uh, politicization, anti-racism, fighting back against white supremacy, uh, educational apartheid, and other structures of inequality. So these were all relevant strands that I integrated into my first analysis, You know, looking at the historical trajectory of African-American secular humanism from a radical feminist uh, woman of color stance that had not been done before, And the follow-up to that appraisal and analysis is my current book, Godless Americana, Race and Religious Rebels.
0: Right. So in in this book, um, you, I mean, you talk about a whole bunch of things, but um, you, why is it that the so-called mainstream secular atheist movement Um, has such a a dearth of uh, voices of of people who are not white or who are not male for that matter?
1: Well, a number of different reasons. I mean, if we look at the contemporary trajectory of atheism from a European-American perspective, the majority of those that are most visible globally are white males coming from academia, coming from a science perspective, focused on church-state separation issues. And That has not historically been the emphasis of African-American humanists and certainly not humanists of color in general. Humanists of color in general um, are coming from a very radical progressive tradition by and large. There are some outliers that are more conservative to reactionary, but the majority of African-American free thinkers are really coming from a liberation struggle perspective that makes connections between humanist traditions of social thought and the global struggle against imperialism, colonialism, and apartheid that communities of color have been embracing and um, really deeply embedded in since time immemorial. So there's a big schism in terms of Again, these trajectories of life experience and the degree to which white secularists are steeped within systems of oppression, disenfranchisement, and white supremacy. If you're a white person in the United States, um, you have a whole wealth of opportunities that people of color across class lines simply do not have. You're not criminalized. You're not segregated into, quote-unquote, inner-city ghettos slash cesspits. You're not demonized within mainstream media as being the racial other, the primitive, the savage, the non-American. You are automatically assumed to be a citizen by dint of white skin privilege. And whether or not you are working class, a lower income, or quote-unquote dispossessed as a white person, you are still afforded with disability as a human being. You know, we've seen this time and time again in terms of the nexus of black struggle, racial apartheid, and criminalization in so-called inner-city urban communities, most notably uh, with the case of Trayvon Martin and the way in which uh, that youth was wrenched twice by the justice system in terms of his murderer not uh, being apprehended immediately, and then the second time in terms of his murderer not being found guilty. And we know uh, as people of color that that would not have been allowed had Trayvon Martin been white and George Zimmerman uh, been African-American or of color. So those are the kinds of issues that really inform the experiences of humanists of color. As a feminist of color, I will note, again, we're talking about criminalization, that African-American women, this is something that I highlight in the book, African-American women and girls are disproportionately criminalized, Disproportionately suspended, expelled, opportunity transferred, consigned to adult prisons and juvenile detention facilities, far and above males of other races and ethnicities. And this kind of dehumanization and apartheid profiling is what informs our construction as females that have never been considered to be fully human and to be fully feminine. And so these are major themes that I bring forward, again, looking at this from the perspective of what I have termed culturally relevant humanism, that if we're going to make humanism impactful for working class people of color in terms of programs, resources, social services, and intellectualism, all the things that some progressive faith-based institutions provide people of color within a capitalist system. If we're going to make humanism impactful, then it must be connected to the lived experiences of people of color under a system of global capitalism, apartheid, heterosexism, and patriarchy.
0: You talk a lot about the intersection between capitalism and hyper-religiosity, I particularly like one of your quotes where you say, like mold in a moist environment, hyper-religiosity thrives under capitalism. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: That's germane to the way in which communities of color have been radically underdeveloped under um, a hierarchical capitalist exploitive system. Mm -hmm. Take my neighborhood, for example, I live in south l a and South l a has been widely demonized within mainstream media as being a ghetto cesspit. it 's nothing of the kind it 's a very diverse community, um, a very uh, you know ethnically rich community and very religiously diverse community. so the unfortunate dynamic of these symptoms of you know capitalist oppression and exploitation is that when you go to quote-unquote, main street areas in South L.A., Uh, you will see storefront after storefront that is occupied by a faith-based institution, a church, a resource center, and then you may see abandoned buildings that are up for lease, uh, that have not been inhabited for many years. So... The downside is that you have faith based institutions that are able to lease these storefronts, um, at a very low cost because they're tax exempt organizations. And this is at a deficit when it comes to actual retail, commercial centers, uh, recreational centers, you know, other kinds of culturally relevant and responsive businesses and institutions that could possibly inhabit these spaces. And there has been massive divestment in urban communities of color. I mean, if you go through South Central, there are very few grocery stores, uh, you know, green spaces, parks, again, um, a dearth of community centers. And a lot of these functions are, fulfilled by faith-based institutions in urban communities of color. Now, conversely, if one goes to the West, which is predominantly white, and we're talking maybe several miles to the West in looking at uh, the community that I live in, which is right by Englewood, you go several miles to the West. You have community centers, you have parks, you have green spaces, you have uh, myriad grocery stores, you know, healthy food stores, uh, you know, big chain stores, big box retail, a whole abundance of different business, commercial, recreational, and cultural institutions. And so this is the downside of capitalist exploitation. I don't really subscribe to the belief that there is an upside um, you know, given that if we're looking at the way in which labor is constructed, you know, that the labor of women of color is grossly, you know, under, undervalued within capitalist systems of oppression. And this is why women of color, particularly African-American women, even though we have the greatest workforce representation amongst all subgroups of women, that we are still working in predominantly lower wage jobs that do not have defined benefits, that are not permanent, you know, that are very much you know, subject to the vagaries and the upheavals of a global capitalist economy. And it is for this reason that there's so much economic and social pressure Uh, Upon African American women, you know, in terms of being caregivers and workers on the front lines. This is where churches come in. We know that, quote unquote, historically African American women have been, and this is a cliche that's been trotted out ad nauseum, the backbone of the church. Where it's not just that black women have been, you know, so emotionally and socially indoctrinated, you know, into the idiocy and absurdity and uh, the non-reality based fictions of the church it's by dint of all of these intersections capitalism, white supremacy sexism, patriarchy and criminalization happening in urban communities and In many regards, black women look to churches and faith-based institutions for affirmation, for visibility, for solidarity, for caregiving, uh, both in terms of their own children and caregiving for everyone else's children. So churches and faith-based institutions serve multiple roles that are deeply embedded by and exacerbated by capitalist inequities.
0: Yeah. So basically, there's uh, they they fulfill this sort of role in the African American community that um, that the secular community just fails to uh, um, to to meet those needs for uh, people of color. Like the secular community doesn't have that kind of uh, support system that includes the realities of um, of these neighborhoods, and so therefore um, the the religion
1: still plays a central role? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, obviously there aren't any humanist organizations in communities of color. I founded Black Skeptics LA um, a few years ago with a few other like-minded folk, and we're a fledgling nonprofit, 501c3, and we recently um, established a first-in-the-family humanist scholarship fund to really pipeline the most challenged young people of color into institutions of higher learning, specifically undocumented foster care, homeless and lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered young people who see the highest rates of incarceration, detention, and overall criminalization in terms of their imaging in mainstream society. You know, there's a big correlation between the numbers of young people that are in foster care and those that eventually fall through the cracks and become homeless. Big correlation between the numbers of young people that are homeless who fall through the cracks and become incarcerated. Huge correlation between the numbers of young people that are lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender who, quote-unquote, fall through the cracks, are abused, harassed, marginalized, and dispossessed. And are consigned to foster care, and then become homeless, and then become incarcerated. So we wanted to try and identify all of these points of intersection and to really come forward as atheists and humanists to say that there is a deep and abiding vacuum in mainstream atheism When it comes to social justice and racial justice and gender justice, looking at all of these disparities that specifically impact the lived experiences and the outcomes of young people of color, in a national context that is decidedly not post-racial, decidedly not colorblind, decidedly not meritocratic, and decidedly not exceptionalist. And this is a theme that recurs in Godless Americana. One of the reasons why I was compelled to write this book is the yawning absence on these issues and the silence on these issues in mainstream atheism and even, quote-unquote, progressive atheism. Again, to try and articulate a vision of cultural relevance within a humanist feminist context that is steeped in these lived experiences and that addresses them from an education reform, a radical education reform perspective. There is so much happening in terms of the privatization and charterization of public schools that effectively dispossesses the most needy and the most quote-unquote at-risk, and I have a problem with that term, but I use it as shorthand for this conversation, at-risk youth of color that are in inner-city schools. And so in order to address these hierarchies, if we are truly serious as humanists, radical, progressive of color in terms of making humanism accessible as a movement and viable as a movement, then we must continue to push these kinds of initiatives that truly begin to redress this devastation that school-to-prison pipelining has wreaked upon our communities.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point because uh, I've heard sometimes in the atheist movement, um, a lot of women certainly talking about uh, the lack of visibility of women in the atheist movement um, and you talk a little bit in your book about how white women, um, when when they um, you know get together to protest or, or or so forth, they they kind of leave out uh, women of color and their realities. Uh, Couldn't you talk a little bit about that? I know you mentioned the Slut Walk, which I thought was really interesting, um, and things like that.
1: One of the things that I focus on in terms of the historical aspect is the notion of a cult of true womanhood, and that was an ideology that was articulated in the 19th century. It gained currency uh, with first-wave feminism, and it really demonized and dehumanized women of color as not conforming to mainstream European-American paradigms of proper femininity. Women of color by dint of being enslaved or by dint of being dispossessed, by dint of being viewed, quote-unquote, universally by Western culture as savages, uh, as hypersexual as Jezebels were never put on pedestals, were never viewed as a weaker, fair sex, uh, were never conferred with all the rights and privileges of power, ownership, and authority that European-American white women under a system of enslavement and slavocracy were afforded. And that's something I thought was very important to bring forward in the narrative, that white women, even those that were on the front lines of abolitionist social struggle, still had the privilege of being considered to be proper ladies, were still protected by secular laws, definitely relative to women of color, Native women, Indigenous women, and African women, if we're talking about the antebellum period. And this is not something that white women feminists and suffragists widely acknowledged. There were plenty of activist women of African descent during this period that were really pushing the boundaries and attempting to shape the discourse on how white women's privilege was wreaking havoc to the emergence of first-wave feminism. I'm thinking specifically of orators and activists like Maria Stewart, who I focus on, a quite Intensively in the book, Maria Stewart was actually the first woman in the United States to speak in what was then dubbed to be a promiscuous space, a space of mixed gender, male and female. And she was based in the black church. She was a free black woman. She spoke very critically of the nexus of gender oppression, racial oppression, and white supremacy, and based her oratory in a rereading and deconstruction of biblical text. So she was a spiritual-slash-religious evangelical speaker, activist, and intellectual, but recognized that there were many aspects of the Bible and biblical teachings that were deeply problematic when it came to the issue of black women's liberation, both domestically and globally and also, as I said, was very on point in terms of pushing back against white feminist supremacy. Now, I also take up this thread of white feminist supremacy when it came to the way in which early secular feminist activists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton articulated their stance toward the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment conferred African American men with the right to vote there was a lot of very heightened racist and nativist discourse and propaganda and pushback by prominent white feminists against the 15th Amendment because many of them were coming from the position that they, as white women, should be conferred with the right to vote before savage, uncivilized, ineducable black men and other men of color in addition to, quote-unquote, ethnic men, like Irish men. So this was a big part of the leitmotif of first-wave feminism, and it has definitely informed the fissures that exist within the contemporary women's movement and the fact that you do not see mainstream women's organizations on the front line for mass incarceration, for criminalization, for fetal homicide laws that disproportionately target African-American women, poor women, other women of color in the South and the Midwest. These are not issues that are being taken up by and large by mainstream white female-dominated feminist organizations. And so if we're looking at culturally relevant humanism, specifically within a through K-12 context, which is the context that I operate in as an educator. How do we go about making feminism viable and real and impactful upon the lives of young girls and women of color? We have to base it in the fact that black women have off the chart rates of HIV/AIDS contraction, have off the charts rates of intimate partner violence, and this has a lot to do with, yes, hyper-religiosity, but it also has to do with the way in which black women, going back to my earlier comments, have never been considered to be fully human within a white supremacist context of patriarchy and heterosexism, and the fact that black women are more likely to be single-parent providers More likely to live in highly segregated communities with very high rates of transit dependency, very um, low living wage job opportunities, very high rates of violence and criminalization. So, state violence coming from police repression, police brutality, police murder, but also violence in terms of moving around in public spaces in communities where there's not a lot of value placed upon the lives and the bodies of African-American women. And so when I position humanism as a teacher through my Women's Leadership Project program, and this is a program that I started in South L.A. in 2002, began in middle schools, And then we have transitioned to uh, to high schools in South L.A. that have similar demographics, predominantly African American and Latino. We position feminism in terms of let's look at the connections between the historical struggles, struggles of black and brown women against slavery and dispossession and criminalization and the contemporary context of our disproportionate rates of intimate partner violence, of HIV-AIDS contraction, of sexual assault, of criminalization, suspension, expulsion, detention, all of these issues of the nexus of violence, racism, sexism, and white supremacy that are absolutely not being confronted within mainstream feminism and definitely not mainstream secularism.
0: Within the educational um System, how does this kind of um, discrimination get um, perpetuated? Because you mentioned, for example, Elizabeth Cody Stanton and uh, even Thomas Jefferson in your book. um, And I think most people have no idea how incredibly racist uh, some of his comments and ideas were. And yet, if you study in any, I mean, uh, I'm imagining I'm not actually American, but if you study in any American school, Thomas Jefferson is considered to be this sort of hero of American history, um, and it, it's really quite astounding how you don't really learn about all of these different things that you're talking about.
1: Yes. So, I mean, that's one of the issues um, vis-a-vis the way in which culturally responsive education you know, has been systematically <clears throat> demeaned and marginalized. I mean, you get a very mainstream Eurocentric masculinist take on history that has nothing to do with the dialectical analysis of how you can have this contradiction of a nation that is founded upon the notion of individual liberty and the notion of everyone being equal, there being a font of opportunity. On the one hand, And then on the other hand, this being articulated within the context of slavery and dehumanization and the trading of black bodies and the capitalization of black labor and the commodification of black female reproduction. So that's something that the book brings forward in terms of unpacking the contradiction between this exceptionalist notion of European-American slash Western secularism and the realities of apartheid, white supremacy, and other systems of institutional and systemic disenfranchisement and inequity.
0: One of your critiques, which I found really interesting, is when you talk about the um, atheist movement's focus on science and how it is generally put up on a pedestal as sort of you know, the way to think rationally um, and the way to uh, to combat actually social injustice. And you say that this is actually incredibly insulting to communities of color. Um, how does science play into this kind of discrimination?
1: I think it plays into it in a couple of ways. Um, one, there's this kind of atheist, scientific, exceptionalism that does not acknowledge that there has been a very strong and robust tradition of scientific racism in certainly American history in particular and in European history in general. And in the book, I bring out how the black body in particular was the linchpin of the notion that there was a duality that existed between the West and uh, the savage, backward, um, dark continent. And this is something that was utilized to justify slavery, to justify systems of apartheid and Jim Crow, to justify uh, the continued disenfranchisement of African Americans uh, going into the 20th century. And these are not traditions that are readily acknowledged within mainstream atheism. The fact that science is continually emerging and evolving within very specific political, social, cultural, and historical context that is informed by the perspectives, first and foremost, of the dominant culture. And so I unpack some of the analyses that have been made by extremely outstanding writers like Joseph Graves, like Harriet Washington, like Dorothy Roberts, and looking at the way in which the black body was dissected literally and figuratively in order to establish the font of racial difference, the font of moral difference, and really the font of national difference. And so this was propaganda, you know, that was utilized by the framers into, again, the 20th century, um, you know, when Jim Crow laws and other really oppressive pieces of legislation and public policy were put in place to essentially say that we have this backward primitive population that should not be allowed to, quote, unquote, breed, that should be consigned to lower-income inner cities, ghettos, should be consigned to prisons, uh, should be subject to all of this really draconian fascistic testing and experimentation, and should ultimately be the linchpin of a national propaganda strategy to prop up the glory and the enlightenment of the American empire. And so science has always informed the social construction of the imperialist other. This is something that has never been recognized within most mainstream assessments of science-based you know, atheist perspectives.
0: Is there anything, um, like any suggestions on how we can make the secular community more diverse? Like, do you see it getting better? Do you, you know, think there's much hope or do you think it's, it's getting worse?
1: I think that there is hope insofar as there are organizations nationwide that are, you know, working to break down some of these barriers and to address some of these inequities. So, for example, there was just a, Rally in New York that was convened by Black Atheists of America and Black Nonbelievers Inc. that brought together um, a very healthy and robust number of nonbelievers of color in a show of solidarity. There is the Day of Solidarity that was originated by Donald Wright of the uh, Houston Humanist Group. He's a longtime activist on social justice and humanist issues and that brings together African-American non-believers nationwide, and that uh, has been in place for the past three years, and again, there's Black Skeptics LA, and we were fortunate to have gotten a lot of support from the secular community on the scholarship, Um, a lot of great donations, a lot of articles, and general reinforcement within the atheist humanist media. So There are glimmers of hope, movement, optimism, solidarity, coalition building, but not as much as there could be given that the global atheist movement has, uh, you know, really rocketed into mainstream visibility.
0: Mm -hmm. So the media plays a large part in this as well in terms of who they wish to cover and who they gravitate toward.
1: Yes, absolutely, because we know that there are a number of, you know, social justice-minded, small, you know, atheist, humanist groups. I would say more humanists than atheist mm-hmm. that are engaged in prison reform and looking at homelessness, um, you know, trying to address abortion and reproductive justice. But those organizations are just not given play within mainstream media.
0: Right, right. So if people want to read your book or know more about these issues, um, where should they go to? Is your book readily available? Is it on Amazon?
1: Yes. Yeah, the book is on Amazon. The book um, is also accessible via my website at sakibu.hutchinson.com. But Amazon is probably the best place in terms of easier accessibility.
0: Right. Okay. All right. Uh, Thank you so much for being on today um, and talking about your important book. Thank you. Been listening to an interview with Sikibu Hutchinson, author of Godless Americana Race and Religious Rebels. This is your hostess, Annie Sapaya. Thank you for listening to Books and Secularism. See you next time.